Today's final special federal election recap episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising and community engagement. We partner with organisations, businesses, trade unions, social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and to train folks to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organised and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an executive legal assistant to support a national leader on a 12-month fixed-term contract based in Melbourne. This will include coordinating and supporting the leader. (laughs) The leader, that's... Great. Uh, With high-level administrative assistance, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with key internal and external stakeholders and providing excellent client service. To apply to work with the leader, uh, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that's out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. Obviously, as you know, we're still at home. Today is the final of our seven episodes in which I'm joined by uh, per capita's Emma Dawson and David Feeney, former senator, campaign director and uh, member for Batman, to unpack the election. Obviously, we had a great win on Saturday night and today's episode will basically talk about that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you like the show, please be uh, sure to give us five stars uh, on Apple Podcast, or even better, still leave us uh, a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Friday morning on the land of the Wurundjeri people and under the leadership of a federal Labor government. Isn't that nice to say? Welcome back to our final of our seven federal election weekly recaps. Uh, And Australia has now voted and they voted into office for only the fourth time since the war, a Labor government. And to break down election day and the results and all the things that happened around it, I'm once again, for the last time, for this series, joined by the Executive Director for Per Capita, Emma Dawson. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Hello. And the four-time MVP uh, in the uh, NBA, uh, David Feeney. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Nice to be back with you. Um, Before we jump into our analysis, uh, of the election, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone that helped pull together our live telecast election night party. <laughs> David is shaking his head. Um, and we'll come to that in a moment, um, which was with myself and Badham, Ben Davidson, and of course, David Feedy. It was a huge operation. Um, it was about 20 people actually working behind the scenes to make it all work. Tech crew, data people, producers, media monitors, uh, plus our people who actually on came on the actual telecast campaign correspondence and all the other guests, friendly Geordies, Grace Tame, Sally McManus, a whole heap of other people. Um, all very talented people uh, and also stuck with us for the four hours. And also thank you to all the people who actually watched it. Uh, over 42,000 people watched it. Um, David doesn't believe that number for some reason. David doesn't believe the science. I don't understand why this is the case. I thought he was a enlightened individual. But anyway... 
Um, so it was a huge success and a special mention to Van, Van and Ben, uh, our comrades from the week on Wednesday for being amazing co-hosts and comrades. It was actually a, a great night. David Feeney, did you enjoy yourself? I did. I did. It was a lot of fun. It was a good way to spend election night. Um, and, you know, afterwards I spoke to both of our viewers and they loved it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Emma, I need to tell you that David arrived uh, two minutes before we went live, as he traditionally does. He missed all the pre-briefs. He ignored all of my directions on a Slack channel, which was sort of, you know, working out who we're going to speak to next, what state we needed to look at next, so he could sort of be on top of the way that the run sheet was going. So I had to write it all down on a sheet of paper that was in between us. You know, it it didn't show. And and having worked with David when he was in the Senate, as he was duty senator a couple of times for some ledge that I was uh, looking after for Conroy, he got across it it like that very, very quickly. I was the booth captain for West Garth Primary School. Well, there you go. And I was not going to let them down. Well, (laughs) very important. This this communication device that I had established midway through the telecast, which was writing down what we were doing next, then was undermined because David stole the only pen that we had on the desk as well because he wanted to take his own notes. So then it became, I was, I don't know Auslan, so I didn't know how to communicate with David without being on the mic. But anyway, we got there in the end. And Emma, hey, it's media. You've got to look after the talent. <laughs> and Emma, you joined us as well. So we're very pleased to see your lovely face on the screen early though in the night. Um, very, very early in the night, yeah. How were you feeling at that moment when you did come on in terms of the, our prospects? I, I came on just as the results from Tasmania were coming in. So I was actually having PTSD flashbacks to 2019 and trying to make sense at the same time. Um, so it was not a good feeling at that moment, but it very quickly recovered. It did. It did indeed. Okay, so let's um, let's do that. Let's uh, let's jump in. What, okay, for the folks at home, here's what we're going to do uh, because we know that sometimes these episodes can go for hours. So what we're going to do is we are going to – do a bit of a, a run-through of all the states, but not in the way that we did uh, a couple of weeks ago with that six-and-a-half-hour episode. We're going to quickly just run through the states and we're going to get talking points from from Emma and for David. Um, we're going to do it like our community organisers do it, which is at the end of a, a phone bank or a door knock or a training, we're going to do pluses. So the things that we liked from this particular state, uh, deltas, so the things that we would change going forward, and the key learnings. What did we learn from what we saw in this particular state? And that's how we're going to debrief each of these states. But we're going to move them through quite quickly because uh, in two weeks from now, we're actually going to do uh, individual socially democratic episodes where we have uh, our campaign correspondents from those states come on and do a show where we actually properly break down what happened in that state. So we'll just run through that quite quickly. And then after we've done that, we're going to look at the Liberals, we're going to look at the Teals, we're going to look at the the, the, the media, and then we'll do final thoughts. Okay, so that's how today's episode is going to run. Okay, let's do a, a very quick overview. Uh, as it stands right now on the AC website, the and we're taping this on a Friday morning, the ALP are on 75 seats in the House of Representatives uh, one short of uh, what we need to form government. The Liberal Party, the National Party Coalition are on 57 and others are on 15. The seats that are still in doubt are Brisbane, which is uh, leaning towards the Greens. Deakin, which uh, the Liberals are ahead. Gilmore, which uh, was a Labor held and the Liberals are ahead. And McNamara, which is a Labor held and Labor are ahead. And there were two big dumps of postal votes that were counted this week that um, heavily favoured Labor and the Liberals and has kept the Greens in third. So we need um, – Josh has to remain either first or second uh, to ensure that he uh, gets over the line in McNamara. Um, let's first go to New South Wales uh, where Labor had a gain of uh, the seats of Reid, Robertson and Benelong. 
the losses of Fowler and the others' uh, gains in McKellar, North Sydney, uh, Wentworth. Emma Dawson, to you first of all, New South Wales, what were your pluses from uh, what we saw in New South Wales? Oh, look, I think <clears throat> I was really delighted to see Sally Sitter get up and read. Um, she's a really great candidate, uh, very diverse electorate, um, and obviously a seat that swung a little bit recently. We put a lot of work into Reid, I think, and it paid off on the night. Um, and she'll, I think, be a really great addition to the parliament there. David, your pluses? Uh, it was a good result in New South Wales. It was spoiled a bit by what happened in Fowler and a lot of ink's been spilt about Fowler, but obviously um, in hindsight we can say there were a lot of significant missteps by Labor in Fowler. Um, but putting that to one side, it was uh, one of the better results in terms of seats that Labor's achieved in New South Wales for a long time. And given that it was the uh, rock upon which the Hawke-Keating governments were built, um, it is nice to see it um, delivering such a good harvest for Labor. Um, and uh, Deltas, what were some of the things that we'd want to change from what we saw in New South Wales from the results um, and maybe Fowler is the one that we want to lift up. Yeah. I don't know if we're prepared to talk about that right now because I know it's still pretty raw and pretty it's real. It's got to be raw, but I think we have to take the lesson that, you know, candidate, particularly given what happened in the broader electorate, is that candidate selection is really important, right, and we need to change the way we think about that. Communities want candidates that represent them, um, and that's come through in the community independent wave as well. Uh, what happened in Fowler was complicated and it should never have happened in the first place, right? Um, we, sh we shouldn't have had a deputy Senate leader put third on the ticket. Um, but we do, I think, need to take a broader lesson from that, which is that um, communities not only want people that reflect them, but Labor members as well want to have more of a say in who's pre-selected for the party. This is not news. This is something that's been you know, bubbling along in the membership for a long time and it's, it's pretty visceral down here in Victoria at the moment too. And that's, a, that's something to remember. This isn't the first time that this situation has happened in terms of how we pre-select someone into what is regarded as safe um, blue ribbon, red ribbon, I don't know what kind of colour ribbon it would be, uh, territory. We do this all the time. And this is the first time we're being kicked in the arse. Um, and I'm wondering if in terms of a key takeaway then, do, do we learn from this moment? Uh, or does the party go, well, that was, a, that was just a, a unique situation so we can continue to parachute in people into safe Labor territory and not give the membership a say or not try and find someone from that community that is both Labor but also of the community. David, your thoughts on that? Well, context is everything, isn't it? And uh, what happened here, I think that the candidate brought certain attributes to the contest. Um, and to be brutally frank, um, you know, she was a well-known figure as a former New South Wales Premier, um, she was very sort of ostentatiously described as someone who was coming from a long way away demographically um, and politically, um, and she was going into a safe seat where the Liberals really were running dead and there was a formidable independent. I'm not sure we understood there was a formidable independent, but on election day it was very clear there was, um, and that formidable independent had swept us off the field. So. Um, context is everything. I mean, in Parramatta, of course, there was um, a, an analogous challenge and their Labor pulled through and delivered um, a good result. So uh, context is everything. But I, I agree entirely with Emma. Candidate selection is critical. 
uh, and having people who can win those contests and not taking our um, base uh, for granted, absolutely critical. Yeah, and look, it, it doesn't reflect well on the Liberal Party either, Fowler, right, because uh, Di Lee, who, is, who was the formidable independent, was a former Liberal Party candidate at the state election in 2015. Uh, Mike Baird apparently wanted her in the upper house. Uh, she was the Liberal candidate for that seat from central casting and the Libs wouldn't pre-select her either. Um, so, you know, I think we both both sides have to take... Um, they've probably got a bigger issue than we have, I think, on candidates for pre-selection by a long shot, but there's the community spoken across the country pretty loudly about wanting more representative people in the parliament. Indeed. And just to go back to something Emma said before as well, I mean, there's a broader failure here too. I mean, the, the decision in Fowler was the fruit of um, a, a very poor decision-making around the Senate ticket um, and a long-time and really inexcusable jog lam, uh, log jam about solving that problem. So um, there's plenty of blame to go around here. And the, the other thing to recognise is, and I, look, I don't mind Christina Kinley, she's been on the podcast we had a great yarn. Um, He's a huge loss to the party. Yeah. You know, to Labor party. Yeah, absolutely. She's a talent. And yeah. why was it that we had two women having to fight off for this position when there is a absolute truckload of blokes that are in, sitting on all of these lovely comfy seats uh, mm-hmm. and not making uh, any moves to accommodate, you know? Yeah. And look, as I said at the time, it was unimaginable to me that a male deputy leader in the Senate would be put in that position. You know, and I understand the complex factional things. I don't understand them. I'm hopeless at understanding that stuff. But I understand that there are complex factional issues at play. But the whole thing just to the public, it stank, right? It looked like first it was sexist, then it was racist. Really, it was just, you know, <laughs> massive incompetence and, and, yeah. and uh, complacency, I think. Okay, let's uh, go south of the Murray to the great state of Victoria, um, where Labor picked up. Well, Labor Woo-hoo! picked up. I know, Labor picked up two seats: uh, Higgins and Chisholm. Uh, no losses, uh, and the other gains were Goldstein and Kuyong. N- didn't really cover that. I don't know. Really, I'm not across what happened there. I'm not entirely sure who the candidates are. I'm sure there was a bit of news coverage on those seats as well, uh, and no losses for Labor as well. Um, pluses for the great state of Victoria, starting with you, David Feeney. Well, a great result for Victoria. I mean, we've been through several federal elections where people say, gee, we need to get more out of Victoria. And I would say, you just can't. Like, we've got, you know, 19 or 20 or 21 or however many. Um, but here we did it, a great result. I mean, Chisholm obviously was a excellent campaign, well-targeted with digital comms as well as a, a ground effort. Um, and a Liberal candidate who had some vulnerabilities and we battered them um, appropriately. Um, and in Higgins, which is a seat we've talked about a bit, um, I think Labor's candidate was just outstanding. I mean, talking about candidate selection, we did a great job in Higgins. Uh, and who'd have thunk it, it's now a Labor seat. And given that we're, I think, only just going to reach 76 in the Parliament, um Higgins turned out to be a critical gain, and it was just that. Um, I mean, we'll talk, I'm sure, more about what a death blow these re- represent for the Liberal Party, but for the Labor, um, a, a great win. Emma, your pluses. Yeah, absolutely. Just delighted to see Michelle get up in Higgins and Karina Garland, a terrific candidate in Chisholm as well. Um, you know, the, 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 
the little worrying downside of that is we put a lot of resources into Higgins that came out of McNamara and McNamara is not yet declared. We'll, I, we'll hold on, I think, in McNamara. Josh is well ahead, um, but that's been nerve-wracking for a McNamara resident uh, over the last few days. Uh, but I'm relaxing much more on Friday morning. He's pulled a good 2,500 votes ahead of the Greens candidate, um, yeah. 75% counted, and, of course, most of those postals will come from the local Jewish community who don't vote on Saturdays. They'll favour the Libs or Labor, you would think. So uh, that's reassuring. But yeah, Higgins, just it's, it's fantastic to see that seat. And there have been demographic changes over the years, right, that mean it really wasn't being well represented by uh, the Liberal candidate. And I think Michelle Anandaraja is going to be um, a, really, a really strong voice in our party. And I think, you know, with work and if she continues to campaign as she did, she could hold that seat for some time. Uh, Deltas from, I don't know if you can find any in Victoria. God bless us. Uh, <laughs> Benny Deltas, anything you would change? Uh, can I just say one more really positive thing? Peter absolutely. Murphy, Peter Murphy in Dunkley has turned a marginal seat into a thumpingly safe seat down uh, there. Um, and that, again, she's just an incredibly hardworking local member. Um, uh, my parents live in that seat. They say they see her around all the time. She's, uh, you know, full disclosure, good friend too. But I just think she's done an amazing job down there. And Karangamon. Well, it's worth well. reflecting for a minute too on Deacon and Menzies, funnily enough. Uh, they were both seats that uh, the Liberal Party led up holding, but only just. And I wonder if we were cognizant of how within reach they were um, and whether um, we, I mean, I can't imagine a Labor campaign director imagining. Menzies on the target list, so I'm not about to criticise anybody here, but um, that looked to me like political terrain where we were perhaps much more in the hunt than even we understood. Yeah, I think with more resources we would have taken Deacon, yeah. Oh, without a doubt, Uh, and Menzies as well. Um, and you know, I, I think I tweeted this uh, the day after the election because you got there's that, there's that there's that sort of uh, moment where you've got to get all your hot tweets out, right? Your hot takes, just get them out early. <laughs> Be the first. <laughs> Um, and I, one thing I did notice, uh, if you, uh, 2018, 2022, uh, the Labor result in that part of the eastern suburbs of Melbourne um, has, has been huge. And, you know, to your point, David, you know, I, I wonder if the Labor campaign was looking at that, and I don't know about the 22 campaign, but 2018, without sort of going into the way that we do our research, um, our Early, early, early track poll, which was a collection of all of those seats out in that area, um, which we used just to sort of build up sample sizes, had Labor miles ahead. And that included Box Hill, Ringwood, Mount Waverley, um, uh, and all the others, uh, Burwood, all the way to the hills, right? But we were just doing it just to try and see how things were tracking in the seats that we wanted to make sure that we held on to, which was a deputy premier seat and a, and a couple others. But as time went by and as the track filled up with data, we actually pulled out those eastern suburb seats out of the data sample. And early on, we're thinking, oh, that was, that's, that's, an, that's an anomaly. That's not actually what is going on in the eastern suburbs. That's, you know, that's, that must be just all of James's numbers coming in there. So we stopped looking at it. But I, I put this to ourselves in a time machine. If I can go back and say, no, no, keep looking at those seats because that's not an anomaly. That's actually happening right now. And sure enough, on election day it was because we absolutely gutted the Tories in the eastern suburbs and we did it again. We almost did it again uh, on Saturday. So I think a key takeaway for me is the eastern suburbs is in play now and we'll talk more about why because of the Tories, but Labor needs to start putting resources into that part of the, the city because there are gains to be made there and we should embed that for generations. 
people are changing yeah. their attitudes about about who they want to vote for. Um, that was a big lesson for me, certainly for us going oh, forward. Yeah. Well, and, and partly it is demogra- it's generational change in itself, right? I, gr- I grew up out there. Uh, well, I had my teenage years in, in North Bourne and went to school in Camberwell. And the demographics have shifted enormously just in the last decade or so. And that's, it's, it's, it's generational change. Um, there's a lot more, more young families moving into the area. There's um, more medium and high density housing being built. So you've got younger people moving into those suburbs um, and all the people dying, basically, um, really conservative. You know, this, this happens with generational change. Um, and we do have to be sharp and be on it because uh, the Greens have got a very big generational uh, ground game and, and I think the eastern suburbs is, is um, fertile ground for Labor with, with new voters in, that, in those seats. Uh, one Delta potentially, which has been getting a bit of a write-up or certainly um, sort of in the... Uh, the commentary to talking about the swings against Labor in our heartland, um, the western suburbs and the northern suburbs, um, and the implications this will have on uh, state Labor in November. David, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we need to be vigilant about that. I mean, there was a sort of a swing of between 6 and 12%, depending on where you look, uh, across those seats. And while they all remain very safe in the aftermath of that swing, the swing is obviously a problem. I think it points to um, the, the uh, sort of lockdown mandate labour anger that um, was out there. Uh, and that's why we saw sort of One Nation and UAP be the principal beneficiary of that um, vote rather than uh, Greens or Liberal. Um, I, so I think we need to take note of it. I don't think we need to panic either. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, we have seen those, those seats. This is not atypical behaviour for those seats. We have seen them swing like that before and they swing back. Um, we, as I say, we, we, we can't be sanguine about it, but it's not an unprecedented phenomenon what's going on out there. It's funny, I, I reflected on it during the week and, you know, we in Victoria, were be- some of us are sort of beating ourselves up about it, about the concern about what's happening in, the, in those, um, in those uh, seats. There's actually a little bit in the southeast as well. And I actually went and had a look in the seat of Monash and in the town of, township of Mowie, which is Labor Heartland. Monash isn't a state, we don't hold that seat, but Mowie and Morwell is Labor Heartland and there was big swings against Labor to the UAP and One Nation in Mowie as well. So I think we can, you know, it's not just a geographical thing. Uh, it, it's actually a sort of, it, it is a demographic thing. I think we're seeing a lot of my. I, I use the C word. It's a class thing. Yeah. Right? It, I, and when I say I grew up in Baldwin, but the first nine years on Australia, I was in Maui. Um, so I've got friends and family there as well and know the area pretty well. It's a class thing. Um, the people that swung against us were those that are marginalised from the labour force. They're either on, you know, they're in insecure work, unaffordable housing, doing those essential frontline jobs, weren't adequately looked after uh, by federal government stimulus programs during the recession and during the pandemic and and bore the brunt of the kind of lockdowns and and things as well. Um, And they are our people and we need to make sure we look after them and get them back, not just electorally, but because that's what we meant to do with the Labor Party, and those those people are our people. Um, and yeah, it's been happening. It, it's a worldwide phenomenon, right? That the working class and the marginalised class becoming so disenfra- disenfranchised that they move to populist right wing politics. Not nearly as bad here as it is in the UK and the US, but it's our problem to deal with. 
Yeah. Um, the uh, not to make a counter narrative to that, but it's just an interesting. It, I guess this is a, a point about perception and how a lot of people in the party in Victoria are beating ourselves up over this at the moment. In South Australia, the state Labor governments won in two thousand and ten and two thousand and fourteen, where there were swings against them in their heartland, but swings to them in their key targeted seats that they needed to hold on to government. And it resulted in both those elections they had a two-party preferred that was less than the opposition. Um, and they were lauded rightfully as campaign geniuses. Um, here in Victoria, um, it, to some degree, we did th- we've, we threaded a needle, not like they did in South Australia, but we threaded a needle with the swings against us in our heartland, but there were swings to us and seats we needed to pick up. And now we have 24 out of 38 seats or 25 out of 38 seats, which is ridiculous. So I just want to sort of give some... So I guess to uh, people who are thinking about what's going on in Victoria, this was an amazing result, you know? Yeah, but you don't want to be too clever by half with this stuff either. Um, and and the Liberals in 2022 are the stellar example of, of what I'm about to talk about. You, 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 as you reach for swinging voters in marginal seats, you cannot be seen to be letting down your base. That Then you are um, sort of spending um, credit that you will have to work hard to get back later. Um, it's a, it, it's not an inexhaustible currency. And we've seen that with the coalition in glaring terms where they have fallen between two stalls in 2022 and lost their base as well as um, a swag of marginal seats. So but David, I, I, what, what, I certainly what? endorse Emma's remarks. This is something that we do need to take seriously. And this sort of widespread demographic challenge this sort of cultural security right-wing populism nerve that is leading far too many um, of our traditional base away from our flag, we need to be alive to it and counter it. We could turn this into a massive Victorian podcast and maybe I'll get you on that one because I don't agree with that. But anyway, <laughs> let's keep moving. Um, let's go to uh, – where did I say we're going to go to next? I've lost my run sheet. We're going to go to – Let's go to Queensland. Okay, let's go to Queensland then. Pluses from Queensland. Uh, David, you're keen to talk about it. Let's hear from you first. What a disaster. I said pluses. <laughs> yeah, there aren't any. Uh, I, I, it, it, Thank when, God you said that. I'm sitting here struggling to think of one. Yeah. When, when, we, when we turned to Queensland on election night, I, I, much as Emma did, I just watched Tasmania disappoint. And then I was watching Queensland turn to custard and I really wondered if we were going to have a bad night. Um, it was one of Labor's worst ever results in Queensland. I mean, this is an election the Coalition has lost and they have 21 of 30 seats in the state of Queensland. Um, For anyone who's imagining the Liberal Party wildly repositioning itself, um, just think that 21 of its 58 members are coming from Queensland. Um, Maybe uh, we'll end up with five Labor and... Uh, and two greens maybe it'll be five labor and three greens it's a disaster and uh we have uh, i guess queenslanders have pointed to the fact that liberal margins have shrunk in a whole swag of seats and they will go into the next federal election in a far more precarious position across the state but that's a very cold comfort right now um and the Greens just broke through. I mean, here we are in inner city Melbourne. We have fought the Greens year in, year out and held them to one. And the Queenslanders have just dropped their guard and they've picked up three seats. It's apocalyptic. Um, Adam Vance has got three friends now in the House of Representatives and they're all from Brisbane. I mean, it's a nonsense. 
most arguably the most right-wing state in the country has delivered three greens and the most left-wing state in the country has held them to one um i think we need to have a long hard look at queensland clearly federal labor does not know how to win that state and queensland labor does palaget is premier there is a majority labor government in that state um so uh, what is the missing ingredient? I've never run a campaign in Queensland, so I'm not going to discover it. Um, but we do need urgently to unlock the mystery of Queensland. I will lift up one plus. Annika Wales and a number of others uh, increased their margins. Annika was on a knife edge going to this election and she's worked her ass off over the last three years. And now Lily is in... Um, Look, there are individual noble efforts, but we have broad systemic failure in Queensland Labor. Yeah. Emma, yeah. Um, you don't need to offer a plus if you can't think of one, but if you want to, you know, jump on into the hot bath that David just created. Yeah, Annika was the one I was going to say. You know, her, her, she's turned that into a safe seat now, Lily. Um, you'd think, and she's a very good local member. And this, and she did. I just like to point this out that she did this in one term while having twins. Uh, so talk about backwards and, and in high heels. Good on you, Annika. Um, devastated by the loss of Terry Butler. She's a, you know, a real talent. Um, and God, you know, this is a this is a safe place for me to say they always come after our left women, right? And I know they're running in the seats they can win, but far out, it shits me. Um, we don't know if they'll hold on in Brisbane. Madonna might hold on in Brisbane, but yes, they've definitely got at least two, possibly three additional lower house seats. And thank God, thank God for the community-based or so-called teal independence, so that we, do, you know, um, uh, they're they're sort of plan to govern from the crossbench, I think, has, has been dealt a significant blow, not only by that, but by the fact that we look like we're pretty certain to get a majority. Um, and look, I'm, I'm actually pleased with the Senate, right? I think the Senate having a more progressive crossbench in the Senate is a good thing for Labor. Um, we'll, we'll probably need the Greens and at least one other Senator, David Pocock or Jackie Lambie has got another one up. I'm pretty comfortable with that as a Senate um, uh and I think, but I think David's absolutely right here. What the way the Greens won those seats was with a, you know, a really intense ground game over the last three years. Someone told me that Max Chandler Mather, who's replaced Terry King, has knocked on over eighty thousand doors personally over the last three years. Um, and the other thing to note, of course, is there were no community independents in Queensland, or the Teals as they're being referred to. I don't like that name because it implies they're all uh, green tinged liberals, which not all of them are. It's turquoise without heart. <laughs> um, but, you know, I have it on good authority that there was a deliberate decision by the Climate 200 people not to put any money into Queensland because there, there, there wasn't enough momentum locally behind those local uh, campaigners and they just didn't think they'd, uh, they'd raise the cash in Queensland. Um, but it's pretty clear that those seats that have swung green could have been picked up by a community independent or, you know, or their Labor seats that we could get back if we put in that same kind of intensive ground game and, and learned how to campaign in Queensland. I worry that, the, and I, I, I might very well be wrong about this, but I worry that Queensland Labor did not comprehend the scale of the threat. I, I signalled um, on this program and elsewhere that I was concerned about Griffith and I got messages back from Queensland that it was going to be fine. Yep, same. Um, and I worry about whether that means I was just speaking to the wrong people or whether the Queensland machine thought it was going to be fine. And if they thought it was going to be fine, they made a diabolical mistake. Um, yep. 
particularly with the warning we had with what happened to Jackie Trad there in the state election. Exactly. So, um, and then, of course, you know, broadening the critique um, across regional Queensland, um, you know, Flynn, Leichhardt, Longman. Um, there are a lot of places here where Labor needed to make inroads and we really didn't. I'm wondering, uh, Emma, from a policy perspective, the, the Labor Party's policy, uh, environmental policy, um, what, because um, I think it's actually a really good policy. Uh, mm -hmm. What role did that or did not play in shoring up seats like, um, you know, Josh is in McNamara's, you know, in a bit of a knife fight there. Um, yep. uh, we saw swings against Labor in Cooper, but it's, it's fine. But we saw, you know, swings against us to the Greens, obviously. And what happened in, um, in, uh, in Brisbane, plus Richmond as well, got a little close. Um, I thought it was a really good piece of policy. But when I first heard about it, when I went on the podcast with Van and Ben and Van lifted it up at the end and the way she talked about it, I thought they had just announced it the day before, but it had been out for weeks but I'd not really heard about it. And uh, I sort of thought about it since then and going, well, why weren't we, well, maybe we were, I don't know, but I mean, I would be going to those community, those particular electorates and going, look at this. It's a great balance about looking after the environment, but also trying to give people jobs. Yep. And look, I, I think that's, this is the tricky thing for us. And I think what Queensland, it's hard for us to do and what they get wrong. The Greens are narrow casting to an inner city base, right? So they don't have to worry about whether that a policy that appeals there will will hurt us elsewhere. Um, that's the common kind of defence of why why we don't make more noise about that stuff. But it should be able to do that in local campaigning. Um, and I think the bigger point here is um, let's one thing we didn't mention in New South Wales, which is relevant here, let's look at the Hunter, right? Everyone expected us to be under real pressure in the Hunter to possibly lose Hunter this time around. Um, and no National Party seats changed hands uh, and we didn't pick up those regional seats in Queensland. So why, why are the fears in the Hunter Valley about the transition to post-carbon not as strong? Because Labor ran a fantastic ground game in the Hunter. The, the Hunter Jobs Alliance has been operating in that seat for the last three years. Uh, Manufacturing Workers Union, uh, Labor Environment Action Network on the ground, having conversations with people about how, what the opportunities are of Labor's environment policy and Labor's e energy transition policy. And those lo that local connection work was done with those people. Um, and, and that's what Labor activists did in the Hunter. That's the kind of intensive work we need in Queensland that I think Palaszczuk's government does really well, right? They, their, their machine actually does go out and talk to those communities and they get whacked on the national news for backing coal and then the Greens use that against them. But it doesn't affect, the, you know, the people on the ground understand the nuance of the policy and understand what's in it for them because most people... Everybody, like the, anyone, unless you're a crank now, wants to see meaningful action on climate change. But individual communities are still concerned about what that means for them. So the only way to do that uh, in, a, in a state like Queensland uh, and with the Greens on the left of us and, and, and the Canavan Nats on the right is to have those intensive local conversations and talk to those communities every day about why this plan is necessary for the country but why it's also good for you in your community. And if you want to run a good ground game, ground game and have intensive conversations, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. That's what we do. Okay, let's go to Tasmania. I just reflect on this to finish Queensland. Yep. 
There will be more MPs from South Australia in the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party than there will be Queenslanders. Just incredible. Let's go to... Good segue, David. Let's go to South Australia. Um, Pluses from uh, the great state of South Australia, which I said was the Wisconsin of Australian politics on the podcast, on the uh, telecast, and I stand by that now. A great result for South Australia, perhaps their best ever. Six out of Mm. ten, and, of course, the Liberals only having three out of ten um, for, because of the um, independent in Mayo. Um, and Labor ran a good campaign in Sturt, um, and although the Liberals will hold that seat on postals, it was a great result for Labor in Sturt too. Um, at the Senate level, we saw Xenophon really flame out, yeah. uh, and he's a souffle that can't rise twice. Um, and I think, to, although he has enjoyed enormous popularity in South Australia in years gone by, that has clearly withered to the point that he's now on about a quarter of a Senate quota, I think. Um, so uh, an excellent result. Um, we've said before that the Labor Party's organisational wing in South Australia is um, uh, you know, staffed by very solid performers. Um, there's a honeymoon for the Premier there, Melanouskis. Um, it all came together like a beautiful symphony and meant that um, the seat we haven't held since 1943 is back in Labor hands. <laughs> Emma, pluses from the South Australia. Uh, yeah, well, look, um, everything David just said, I think the, um, the the swing back to Labor in South Australia was terrific. It was a reflection of good local campaigning um, and getting Boothby back is a wonderful thing. Um, I'm going to do an unusual thing and give a shout-out to an incoming Green senator uh, from South Australia. It's Barbara Pocock, uh, who I've got a lot of time for. David's got his head in his hands. Um, but Barbara's an IR expert, so it will be interesting to see uh, how we can work with with Barbara um, in the Senate um, because I do think industrial relations is going to be something that we're going to have to grapple with. We're making several submissions to the Fair Work Commission. Hopefully we won't get pulled too far. Um, well, but, she's an expert uh, in forming communes or...? <laughs> she's certainly a, a fairly left-wing academic, David, but I've got a lot of time for Barbara Pocock, so I'm um, not, not unhappy to see her join Revisionism around the gulag system and the positives that it offered for Siberia. <laughs> I, I'll be interested. <laughs> Oh, you're a cruel man. Okay, let's. Uh, any other key takeaways from uh, South Australia before we move to Tasmania? There being none, let's go to the Apple Isle. Uh, can we see any pluses from what came out of the results in Tasmania? Uh, Emma, you first. Well, like I said, it gave me conniptions at the start of the night. Um, look, I don't think it's a surprising that Bridget Archer held on. She built a pretty strong personal brand and good on her. Relieved to see Brian Mitchell get over the line. Um, but, you know, other than that, Tassie was a bit of a fizzer, really. Uh, David, positives? Delta. Yeah, I think the bad news is that I think in our podcast we read this reasonably right. When I say we, I mean me. Um, yeah. Bass was where we got closest, but we just didn't get close enough and it's not the ejector seat anymore um, because the incumbent has managed to get re-elected. We haven't seen that in Bass for a long time. We were worried about Lions uh, and for good reason it gave us all a scare and we'll now hold it by a very tiny margin. Uh, overall, a, a disappointing result from Tasmania. We really thought we'd pick one up there. Uh, we hoped that our pathway to victory um, anticipated the need to get one there and we didn't get it, which made for a scary start to election night. 
um, and means there's plenty of work for Tasmanian Labor to do. We must do better in Tasmania. A key takeaway for me, or something I'm left wondering, is that the the resources of the Tasmanian branch itself are pretty small. They've got a state secretary and a part-time executive uh, assistant, and that's it. Well, the constitution mandates that they have one seat per suburb and more senators than 7-Elevens. Um, so the population doesn't justify the, the fact that it's a wash with electorates. Uh, but we, we and the Liberal Party have understood this since Federation. We just need to get on with resourcing a bigger operation there. Mm. Let's uh, now head west, uh, which was a, a great uh, part of the evening. I enjoyed it immensely as we all did, uh, but I particularly enjoyed uh, Linda Sharlam's sort of uh, crosses where she was literally looking at the back end of the WA uh, numbers as they were coming in and was, getting, was literally just getting her own train of thought and it was just nothing but pure excitement and uh, adrenaline. Oh, my God, Tangy's on now. Um, let's uh, talk to – let's uh, Emma, let's start with what are the pluses that we saw out of uh, WA? <laughs> uh, it was just a – Thumping repudiation of the Morrison government. Um, I've never been happier with WA than I am at this election. Um, and look, some of those some of those seats are very soft, right? Um, but you know, uh, good candidates reflected their communities. I think Labor did good pre-selection work in WA, um, and that that was a significant uh, benefit for us. Um, uh, the Mark McGowan factor, you know, he's just a completely straight. There's a lot of a lot in common between McGowan and Dan Andrews here in Victoria. I think you know they they talk straight, they play a, a pretty uncomplicated game. Um, but I I just think that thank you Clive Palmer and thank you Scott Morrison for completely pissing off the people of WA. I think it also shows though what happened in Victoria and WA was there was a visceral level of anger at the state government for the way people were treated during lockdowns, whether they were local lockdowns in Victoria or the state lockout in WA. This, this uh, the, part, the Liberal Party and Morrison in particular and his branch of the Liberal Party just got Australians wrong. Um, they imported all of that US freedom rhetoric, whereas what the people of, of Victoria and WA did last year was demonstrate real social democratic values, you know, collective values. Um, and the, being the nerd that I am, that's the longer term takeout for me, which is that actually the Australian people are not like Americans in that we, you know, we think our individual liberties are more important than our collective well-being. Um, and that's that's labour values there. Um, and those two states who were um, under Labor premiers and and had a very collective response to the threat of the pandemic. To me, there's a longer term, deeper story there about how we reconnect with that that mentality, that that ideology, that uh, culture of Australia, because it is a Labor culture to look after your mates um, and not to you know try to uh, put the economy ahead of everything else. Um, so there's a longer term lesson for us there too, and it's a positive one that we can build on. Here, here. David, your pluses from uh, WA. Well, I mean, wasn't it poetic on election <laughs> night where the whole country was gripped in this struggle between darkness and light and then suddenly <laughs> riding out of the West, the riders of Rohan swept across the electoral battlefield and brought us home to victory. Four seats from Western Australia, just absolutely bloody beautiful. Um, a magnificent effort by the Premier there who... Um, really delivered um, his authority and prestige to a federal Labor battle. And, you know, Premier's aren't always keen to do that. 
Um, he did it, um, and uh, the whole uh, of the Labor Party should thank him for a, just a great result. I think um, the campaign, the Labor campaign, comprehended the opportunity that was Western Australia and used its digital and television advertising effort to maximise the hits that on those issues Emma just discussed. You know, the, the description of Western Australians as cave people um, was used um, in television advertising to bite Morrison on the proverbial. Um, and uh, really, I, I mean, my dad lives in Western Australia and there's very little likelihood that he votes Labor, generally speaking. Um, and he is a big fan fan of uh, the Western Australian Prime uh, Premier uh, for keeping the state safe. I'm not sure I quite agree with Emma's analysis. I think it feeds into the rampant individualism of Western Australia and the fact that it's the devil take behind most rather than a sense of collective responsibility. But notwithstanding those different takes on human nature, um, Labor did maximise its position and sweep the West so that we now have nine of 15 seats and, of course, the Liberals only have five of the 15. Um, another small state which has got more MPs than Queensland, um, another uh, state which delivered in buckets for Labor. And shout-out to uh, Tim Picton and the team at uh, WA Labor head office for running a great campaign. There's there actually a good article in The Guardian this week that um, folks should try and jump on. Maybe we'll chuck it up on the um, on Dunn Street socials that sort of examined the 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 strategic decision by both WA Labor and the National Secretariat to run a very um, targeted Western Australian-esque campaign. Um, and uh, my key takeaway from that is then why did we not do that in uh, parts of Queensland? If um, WA were given the, the licence to shape their own type of campaign and have a very sort of Mark McGowan focused and focus on our strengths, then I wonder what, I, I just wonder what happened in terms of Queensland. Anyway, leave that with other folks to consider. Okay, I think that's all the states. So let's now pour a bucket on the, a bucket of uh, shit on the Liberal Party. Wow, what a disaster! Where has your party gone? Who wants to stick the boot in first? Emma, over to you. Well, um, it was a comeuppance, right? It was an absolute nothing other than a comeuppance. And I, I've, uh, anyone who hasn't read Richard Flanagan in the Nine Papers yesterday needs to do so. Uh, he, you know, rightly paints this as the culmination of the Howard project um, that, you know, began uh, with how it's relaxed and comfortable Australians who are now known as Morrison's quiet Australians. Uh, they they pretty much screamed in the face of that on the weekend. Um, and, and it's destroyed their party. They have lost their heartland seats. And in my view, most of those community-based independents will hold on as long as they want to uh, in those seats because they have built an incredible uh, force of support uh, locally. Um, and their response is to go hard right, is to appoint Peter Dutton and Susan Lee, um, apparently, as their new leaders, and do go the full Trump. I can't see... Uh, any indication that they've learned anything from it. They've got fewer MPs in the parliament now than do the nationals, apparently. Um, I, I, I think that's the, currently the case. Um, it was a, a culmination of Morrison's own brand of, uh, you know, hyper-Howardism. He was much worse at it than Howard was. As I've said many times before on this podcast, Howard was a much better politician 
um, than Morrison. Morrison's not a bad campaigner, um, but he's not a good politician um, and he doesn't know how to build. He only knows how to divide. Um, and he basically has turned the party of Menzies into a proto-Trump fascist outfit, uh, borderline fascist outfit. Um, and I think that it will, that if they don't do some really hard soul searching, they'll be out of power uh, for a generation or more. So I hope they don't do any really hard soul searching because um, I would like that very much. Um, but it's not good for democracy, right? It's not good for our system to have uh, a really weak opposition. And I think um, that they're likely to be, and, and Dutton is more likely to be an Abbott style wrecker as an opposition leader. Um, uh, he'll be getting a lot of pressure from the remaining forces in his party uh, to be so because there aren't a lot of moderate voices left in that parliamentary party room. David. Um, well, firstly, on the positives for our political system, I did think to myself when I watched Scott Morrison concede on election night that at least we live in a country where the loser concedes. Yeah. Um, at least we don't have that Trumpian curse um, because, you know, the secret to governing is governing with the consent of the defeated. Um, and uh, so, you know, for all of Morrison's sins, and there are many and I'm going to talk about them, um, that's not one. And I will point out, David, as it stands right now, Labor st still doesn't actually have enough seats in the lower house to form government, yet we've already had a transition to government in which, you know... Precisely. It's amazing. And where the legitimacy is not questioned, um, and, uh, and, and that's excellent. And, of course, you know, my heart goes out to those who lost this election. They put their heart and soul into it. And, of course, I'm talking about News Corporation. Um, <laughs> one of... Um, uh, I think what we saw on election night uh, was that over the course of Morrison's prime ministership, we have seen him commit atrocity after atrocity after atrocity and, you know, we're filled with despair about the fact that he did this without apparent consequences. Um, you know, sports rorts, car park rorts, land deals, the alleged rape in Parliament House, the abuse of public appointments, the refusal to form an ICAC, um, on and on and on in just this never-ending series of atrocities. And he just seemed to get away with it like a Teflon Don. He would shrug off um, the what little criticism he got from our compliant media. Um, but in fact, on election night, it all came home to roost. And we saw that, in fact, these series of atrocities had taken layer after layer after layer, and what was left was a hated prime minister. And uh, you know, speaking to various characters in the Liberal Party in recent days, um, they are crystal clear about the fact that this was Scott Morrison's catastrophe. He was toxic. Um, and even where local members were fighting for their lives and had a degree of popularity and credibility, people were saying to them, I'm sorry, but I've... We've just got to get rid of this Scott Morrison guy. So he really um, owns this defeat in a, in a particular way. And I think that has some implications for the future too. So uh, the Liberals now are at a giant crossroads and they're kind of trapped with Dutton because there is really no one else they can turn to. He's the senior figure and he doesn't really have a competitor. But by taking on Dutton as opposition leader, they do risk baking in uh, some of these negatives that they've had over in 2022, baking them in for the longer term, and that should worry them. Uh, for instance, Albo kicking off a debate centred around um, the voice and um, reconciliation with First Australians is just catastrophic for Dutton. Like, he's the guy who walked out of the apology 
um, he's the prince of darkness on this subject. And even if he wants to, repositioning is just going to be so hard for him. So again and again and again, Dutton's just going to be the wrong guy, even if he does understand that and try and do something about it. He's got some dreadful challenges. So on the one hand, the coalition are going to be fighting about whether they go left or right. Um, and on the other hand, they're just going to have a leader who in some ways imprisons them on a path. And finally, let's talk about my friends at News Limited in this respect. News Limited are very good at coming together as a machine for the Liberal Party at election time, but in between elections, they commentate on the Liberal Party um, in a way that tries to shape and change the Liberal Party. We saw them, for instance, run a vicious insurgency against Turnbull when he led the, Labor, uh, the Liberal Party because News Limited judged him to be too left-wing. This is going to happen again. And so as the Liberal Party now has this critical debate about whether it reaches out to the centre or continues on its voyage of discovery into lands no one's ever gone before, um, you know, Sky at Night and this ravening group of cannibals inside News Corp are going to be urging the coalition's rank and file and back and nervous backbenchers to go on that right-wing journey. And the smart heads inside the coalition know that's a diabolical mistake, but they just might not be able to stop it because the, as branch members are mobilised by Murray and other lunatics. Um, so, you know, News Limited is a two-edged sword. It obviously does us a lot of harm at election time. But in between elections, it does try and drive the coalition off a right-wing cliff. Do we want to bring in a conversation quickly about the the community independence, um, as Emma um, would prefer us to refer to them, and the relationship that they had with what happened inside the Liberal Party? Emma, do you want to share your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it says everything about... Oh God, where to start? So first, about their uh, shift to the to the right that has left a lot of uh, traditional smaller liberals feeling pretty homeless. Um, again, as I've said in just about every podcast, the three issues they ran on: uh, climate change, integrity in politics, respect for women, should not be left right issues. They're not considered left right issues by the vast majority of Australians. Um, but they also just were an absolute case study in community-based campaigning, right? That we've got to remember those those campaigns weren't imposed from above. Um, for example, Zoe Daniel was one of eight candidates interviewed by the voices of Goldstein Group and then asked to become the candidate. So, you know, it wasn't that Simon Holmes of Court picked her and people coalesced around her. It was very much the other way around. Um, and certainly Monique Ryan in Kuyong as well built an incredible base of support. They are a long-term existential threat to the Liberal Party and I think those seats now will be very, very hard for the Liberals to get back um, and we, we, we will see more of them um, emerge in over the next three years, I think, as well. Um, perhaps based differently and in different... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how much they spread into regional communities because those national party seats really weren't targeted at all. And yet, of course, the first very successful one and the only one so far to have changed the baton is Indi in Victoria, uh, which is a fairly conservative rural seat. So um, it'll be interesting to see, I think, if that movement 
starts picking up in regional Australia. I, I do a radio spot every week in Melbourne um, and we had a couple of callers this week. One um, send in the message that, uh, you know, the regions were in real trouble now under a Labor government with all these with these modern teals because we were going to destroy regional yeah. economies um, and, and farming would all be destroyed and no one would look after the farmers and no one would look after the regions. And then a farmer called in from Gippsland and said, the National Party does not represent me, you know, and this fear that people have that the regions are, you know, captured by the coal lobby is actually really wrong. And I think there's actually fertile ground for that movement to go into some national party seats, particularly those that are dominated by agriculture and food production. That'll be really interesting to me. But I think, you know, the cliche that people use all the time and have used about us many times, and I'm delighted to roll it out this time in relation to our mortal enemies, I do not believe the next coalition prime minister is in the parliament. Hmm. I certainly don't think Peter Dutton gets all the way through the three-year term. I think that they'll, the Liberal Party will tear themselves apart over the course of the next three years and good luck with that. That'll be great Who's to watch. His right? Who's his moderate challenger? Anyone? Tudge. <laughs> or there are 500,000 reasons why the Labor Party wants Tudge front and centre of the coalition for the next three years. This Absolutely. is a guy who went into hiding during the election campaign and then could not do enough media about the future of the Liberal Party afterwards. And, you know, the fact that anyone's even suggesting Tudge when he is one of the greatest symbols of what those community independents were standing against, which is the treatment of women in Parliament. Mm. No, he, they cannot credibly put him in front of their party. They just can't. The women of Australia won't cop it. It also speaks to the, the fact that we're struggling to kind of work out who would be a contender to uh, to Dutton speaks volumes about the problems that the Liberal Party have had structurally in the way that they select their candidates. The lack of diversity of their candidates as well um, is meaning they're, they're in this situation and diversity both based on gender, diversity based on ideas and experiences. I mean, they're all either, you know, ex-coppers or failed small businessmen. Um, yeah. You know, and all the moderates that were had come through sort of the university liberal clubs all got wiped out. Right, that's right. And I mean, we've we've done this analysis. We did the analysis of the forty sixth parliament. We're we're just looking at it now. They've gone backwards. In, they were not. They were way behind us on diversity anyway. And they've gone backwards at this election. And we've taken huge strides forward. Um, you know, we've got much more cultural diversity in our ranks now. A lot of that's like you put, you know, obviously people that are in marginal seats that have won, great, but how do we keep them there um, and how do we get behind them and how do we ensure that we get those kind of candidates pre-selected in future? Um, but we've also got more women in the parliament. We could have a majority female caucus, you know. Um, so, uh, and the Greens too. The Greens have, uh, well, certainly on, on Indigenous representation, they're not so good at... at getting people from non-European ethnic backgrounds. Um, but, you know, the Libs and Nats now resemble uh, a party of the 1950s, and that was really what Howard wanted, what Morris, what Abbott wanted, what Morrison wanted, and what Turnbull did no nowhere near enough to counter. Um, they do not reflect the vast majority of voters. Uh, they don't, you know, there are hardly any blue seats in the, in the East Coast and, and Perth, most capital cities, right? Um, unless you go outside Tasmania and, and Queensland, um, it's a sea of red and, and teal and green in the cities. Um, and I think that, you know, the majority of Australians live in the cities um, and that our, they, they're just completely now a party that it's very, very hard to see who they've got that is going to be 
um, representative of those communities in the way that Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel and Kate Cheney are. I wonder. I mean, this really was a revolt of the ruling class against the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party liked to write it off as an inner city uprising, but Goldstein, you know, Ryan, uh, these these aren't inner city. This is a this is a, sub, a wealthy suburbia uprising, yeah. and where there weren't teal candidates like Higgins and Benelong, the uprising just went to Labor. Uh, so where it went to the Greens. <laughs> well, well, that's true, and in that, and in Ryan they went to the Greens. So um, they were tossing out the Liberals, and while that teals might have been Plan A, they were happy enough to go with BNC as well, and I think. This sort of high education, high income uh, voter revolt against the Liberal Party is diabolical because it means that you know the professionals and bankers and others who've um, been the governing elite of the Liberal Party since its formation um, have walked away from the party, and so have their suburbs. And so, Stephen, they're falling back to what you the, the sort of the characters you described. Their 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 intellectual and organisational base is hollowing out. At a, at, a, at a very quick rate, and they don't look like um, uh, they don't look like the diversity of Australia, but they don't even look like the diversity of modern Australian boards and corporate environments either. Mm. Um, they're in fact a relic. Uh, and finally, uh, a point that um, Christopher Pine uh, made to me in recent days: a number of the new Liberal MPs in the Parliament, a disproportionate number of the new Liberal MPs in the Parliament, are actually moderates notwithstanding the moderate catastrophe um, of Saturday night. So this battle for the heart and soul of the Liberal Party, in fact, will be uh, uh, very, very interesting um, as they contend with this sort of demographic abandonment, this loss of uh, you know, their, their blue blood golden roots, um, and then this battle on sky at dark for their soul. Can I uh, pick up a point that, David, you've just said there, um, and, and this may be a, a key takeaway or, or something to consider uh, for the future. You said where the Teals or the Greens weren't running in those inner suburban wealthier electorates, Labor was, and the vote went to Labor. Um, if, you're the, if you're the Greens national campaign director, you know, you, you know, it's been a great result for the Greens of this election. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think – I didn't see that coming – but I wonder if they're feeling like there's a missed opportunity here that they didn't actually run campaigns in those seats that were picked up by the Teals because that would have been an opportunity for them to grow even further. And this fixation they tend to have, which is let's just run in the inner city Labor seats and not go after the inner city Liberal seats. I know they had a crack at is it Kyong or Higgins in 2019 and were unsuccessful. So they had a crack once and then don't bother doing it the next time. If they were in those races, they would have been competitive. And if they'd got into on the ground earlier, it's kind of like yeah. that. It's kind I, of. Like I, I, I think you're to be brutally honest. I just think you're over engineering it. Um, I, Greens do well when Labor does badly, uh, and in this election, but we, we just won the election. Yeah, we did, but our primary vote was low, and we can't walk away from that reality either. In this campaign, we saw a toxic prime minister um, collapse the Liberal Party's primary vote, but we saw a Liberal and News Corp campaign successfully tear down our leader and build voter hesitancy around him too. And so in the environment where both leaders and both major parties 
clawed them clawed the eyes out of each other and voters were looking for somewhere else to go the environment was perfect for teals and for other vessels of convenience to to to, to have people park their vote that's why the greens did well because there were plenty of voters out there with voter hesitancy about labor hatred of morrison looking for somewhere else to go and they went green the green campaign in this election was invisible uh, and I suspect if you, if you, unless you were in Griffith <coughs> and perhaps Brisbane, you wouldn't have been aware of one. Um, it, it, Bant was invisible, not just over the course of the campaign, but for three years. Uh, he and um, the Greens have come home with a good result because of this voter hesitancy thing, in, in my view. Um, and so... Uh, the, there are certain demographics which are which which will consider green, um, and we know you know the inner city demographics. Yes, they probably wish they'd run a bigger effort, Higgins, but because they are so passive, because their moments of opportunity are not in their own hands, um, really they just wander around the, the political stage looking a little bit confused, waiting for the ball to slip through Labor's fingers so they can have a go at it. To my second point then, was this a missed opportunity for Labor as well? Because we did, and we talked, I know we talked before about uh, the seats in the eastern suburbs, um, but did we not, I, I think that like sometimes campaigns are, you've got to be a good yachtsman, you've got to be able to see where the prevailing winds are and you've got to be able to pick that and then try and take your boat over there. And I know that we won, which was great, but where are these next opportunities for Labor to grow? Our base. Well, and it's, I mean, if you'd said to me at the start that we're going to lose Fowler, but we're going to form a majority thanks to Benelong and Higgins, I'd have said, oh, you're crazy. Mm. Uh, I mean, Curtin's another one to point out here. Uh, the Liberal Party lost Curtin to a teal candidate, for want of a better description. Um, well, another... He is a teal, right? I think if, you, if you're liberal blue blood and you've joined that, yes, liberal we, can, blue blood. We, can you, we can call Allegra Spender and Kate Cheney teal. And, you know, her campaign headquarters were probably at a polo club and they went yachting to celebrate their victory. This was a quintessential upper-class uprising against the Liberal Party. Um, mm-hmm. So, Stephen, we just need to confront the fact as Labor that we are finding high education, high-income voters um, more susceptible to our progressive messaging and we need to be anxious about the fact that, um, you know, to use the C word, that there are low of education, low income voters, particularly white voters, who get anxious about a whole range of things, not only economic issues, um, and and we need to work out how we can buttress those too. And the evil geniuses in the Liberal Party understand this. That's why Deves was punching down on trans kids. Um, yep. It failed as it should have. It was a dastardly stratagem, but its intent was plain. It was trying to drive a culture war to sa- salvage our wretched Prime Minister. Um, but, but, yes, go, sorry, Emma. Just one reflection on here that on this issue that's that's very policy based, being me. Uh, there's a generational thing going on here too. I, you know, I haven't I haven't seen the full breakdown yet, but when those when those voting numbers come in, I expect the Greens win in Brisbane will have been driven hugely by people under 35. Um, and, and the same in Melbourne. Though Bant has very consciously targeted young, edu- young university-educated voters over the last three years. He's been quiet on the, on the national stage, but he's been loud at the universities um, to the point of having a, you know, a policy to wipe out student debt, which is just important. 
supported from um, America, from the AOC movement over there. Um, but we ignore that or, or dismiss it at our peril because there is actually a significant issue with the, with the destruction of social mobility in this country. Um, and I've been asked by a couple of journos this week to reflect on whether or not someone uh, who had Anthony Albanese's upbringing today would be able to make it to Prime Minister because we don't build enough social housing. We don't have access to free education anymore uh, and job security is not what it was. Uh, and I think those are legitimate concerns that the Greens mm. has tapped into very strongly um, and that, you know, we're going to build a million houses, we're going to wipe student debt. They're, they're, they're not the right policies, but it's the right rhetoric. And and a lot of people, younger people uh, from all class backgrounds now are they're global. They're getting their news globally. They're they know just as much who Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is as they, they probably know more about her than they do than their local MP. And and it's a global phenomenon. And um, it's not just the Bernie Bros, right? There is a legitimate social and economic crisis for people under 40 in this country that neither major party has been willing to address because we've been so scared of the voting power of the babies. And Labor needs to get into that space now. Um, and I think it's something that, uh, you know, uh, you know, per capita, a bit of a blow here. We can help with that. Like we're aware of it. We've done the research. And I know party hardheads and policy wonks know it, but it's starting to filter through to the electorate. And so we've got a very shifting, changing electorate. Um, and I'm really going to be drilling down on those numbers in those Brisbane seats because I believe they're demographically younger seats, uh, Brisbane and Griffith in particular, than most Queensland seats. And that we'll see that that's where a lot of that Greens vote's coming from. Before we turn to the media, I think the, um, the final point I want to make is that I, as a social democrat, I think we should be constantly trying to broaden our church as much as we possibly can. And where there are opportunities to encroach on other people's turf, then I think we should do it. We need to get to Emma's point. We need to get the policy settings right. But from a campaigner's perspective, my perspective, whereas where, where my life lives door to door, having tough conversations with folks, um, there is turf for us to win. And I think that's just the point I kind of want to, I want to leave us on. Okay, let's talk about the media. Uh, David, to you yeah. first, because you've had some uh, you've had some views of, uh, on this podcast every now and then about the media, and I want to get your sense about how they performed over the course of this campaign. Well, they were great, weren't they? Um, <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things that has been said is that this election demonstrates News Limited doesn't have any power because Labor won the election, and I just want to dispense with that because, in fact, they do have power, and we can't be sanguine about it. Um, I, I think they did two things this election that are of great significance. The first is that in fear of them and in fear of their scare campaigns, Labor significantly pruned its policy offering. Um, and it meant that in key areas of economic reform, and uh, Emma's just offered us some insights about that, in key areas of economic reform, Labor was, was very, very modest, not because its heart is modest, but because it understood the scare campaign that any offering in those areas of policy would unleash. So it sort of curated Labor's policy offering um, and that, of course, has profound implications for uh, the campaign and what kind of optimism and constituency Labor is able to generate and feeds into this sort of progressive um, bubble where, you know, gee, Labor's disappointing um, gee, Labor should be more left-wing, you know, and that annoying critique that goes on to our left and feeds the Greens. 
The second great impact of News Limited was that they do suppress our vote um, and they make sure that every victory is smaller than it should be and that every swing towards us is smaller than it needs to be. Um, and so uh, notwithstanding the fact that we won this election uh, in the face of an unprecedented level of partisanship uh, from News Limited, uh, who were utterly integrated into the coalition campaign, um, this victory shouldn't uh, disguise the fact that their impact on this election and on us is profound. And I guess it goes to a final point, perhaps, which is that I'm now hopeful that in office we can demonstrate a, a, a policy courage and resolve that it just made no sense for us to demonstrate in, from opposition uh, because we can do things in office um, that had we tried to announce them in opposition would have just fed into a maniacal scare campaign that would have cut us off at the knees. So um, I think our, you know, the so-called small target approach um, it should not be confused with a small heart. It should be confused. It, 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 it was the fruit of a very clear-eyed view of what News Corp and the coalition would do to us if we demonstrated any uh, any weaknesses that they could ruthlessly exploit through disinformation and fake news. More broadly, I think the campaign was a real low point for the Australian media, and a number of pointed this out. There's uh, there was. Um, uh, I, I think a number of press figures, uh, Jenny um, Hocking in um, John Menadou's Public Policy Journal wrote a piece, Brutality, Cynicism and Unequivocal Incompetence, where the article points out that even on election night, all the media wanted to do was talk about the Liberal Party and what was going on there um, and the teals, you know, the, the media fascination with the teals, and they were barely interested in the fact that we just formed a government. And of course, there was this famous moment where um, uh, Lee Sales turns to Tanya Plibersek and says, Tanya, what went wrong? And Tanya says, you know, we just won the election, idiot. <laughs> no, now, idiot was my bit. But, um, boy, you know, like, they talk about a bunch of people off in La La Land. Um, so that, that all, you know, it's going to take the media a long time to actually realise Labor won and that, that, that Labor's success is the story. So I think we've got a lot of learnings out of this about how bad the media are, about how monolithic and uh, Machiavellian News Corp really is. Uh, we saw its full manifestation in 2022. Um, it, it's not just Fox News. It's not just evil in America. It really is a coordinated evil empire here too. Um, and, uh, you know, I echo Barry Cassidy's sentiment, but Barry Cassidy was just being driven insane on election night by the fact that no one was talking about Labor um, and no one seemed alive to the fact that the story of the night was, in fact, Albo and the formation of a Labor government. Yep, here, here. I mean, the, the, it was extraordinary, that exchange on the ABC. Now, I've been a big defender of Lee Sales on Twitter. She, gets, she cops a lot of flack that's not deserved, as do most female journalists. Um, but that was an extraordinary moment and I think reflected, as I have said, every week we've been doing this, the media reflecting their own preferences uh, and, and what 
became very clear was that most of the Sydney media bubble uh, expected and almost hoped, you would think, uh, it was pretty clear most of them were hoping for a minority Liberal government with the Teals pushing them on climate. So it didn't disrupt their economic interests, but, you know, action on the things they thought mattered. And that they completely not only missed the story of Labor, but missed what the community wanted. The Australians have voted in a Labor government. They do that when they want change. Um, and so the media, to me, yeah, this was their absolute nadir, I hope. I hope they reflect and lift from this. I don't expect it of News Corp. I see some promise, David Crowe today, sort of trying to grapple with the fact that the, the press pack had been called out brilliantly by Mark McGowan the other day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark's words on the travelling press pack, look it up, uh, because he was absolutely brutal. He's, it, there was screaming, there was yelling, there was interjecting behaviour that in any other workplace he said you'd be sacked for. I have never seen anything like it. Um, and so there is some reflection on that from David Crow, and I hope there is from others today as well. But then, you know, the extraordinary thing to wake up on on, on Monday or Tuesday and see a headline in The Age, Labor promised a lot during the election. And I'm like, hang on, didn't you just tell, spend six weeks telling us they had no policies and they had no agenda? So there's this massive about-face, you know, and a lot of journalists quickly pivoting to say, oh, look, Albanese on the world stage looks OK, doesn't he? Still trying to find. They're so trained to that narrative of what has he done wrong? You know, what, what Labor gaffe can we call out today? Um, what went wrong for Labor was almost like, you could imagine Lee Sales had rehearsed that question in her head and the moment to ask it before the night and just couldn't comprehend with the reality of what was happening. Um, and I think, again, this is something that over the last 25 years has become embedded in our political culture, uh, that the media just ain't what it used to be. When you've got people like Barry Cassidy and Kerry O'Brien and Jonathan Holmes um, and Laura Tingle, who's still an active political journalist, saying, this is not how it's done. You know, this is this is embarrassing for my profession. This is not adequate uh, media coverage. Then they've got a lot to reflect upon. But it is going to be, I think, very interesting over the next couple of years. Uh, the ABC, I don't think there is any doubt, is somewhat cowed after nine years of this government. Um, and whether there's a change in tone, I mean, to turn around and have old mate Alexander Downer on Q&A the, the week after the election. Oh, he was uh, great. They should get him on every single week. <laughs> he helps us, right? <laughs> he is $50,000 worth of Labor Party advertising right there. <laughs> I mean, I get that they I'm probably really could him to go on that show. <laughs> but, you know, for the ABC to go, well, let's get Alexander then, you know. Um, why don't you get some, look, why not get uh, Ted Bailey's son on and ask him why he switched to the independents? Uh, it, it's a much more interesting take. So, look, I'm, I'm, you know, still, as I've said before, still shaking from Labor's last attempts to reform the media. Um and on that note, I'd just like to mention one of my favourite sites from election night, I didn't see it on the night because I don't watch Sky News on election night, was my old boss, Stephen Conroy, blowing a kiss to the Sydney media bubble and thanking them for handing Labor the election in WA by their ridiculous campaign against Mark McGowan. It was a beautiful moment. It's circulating on social media. I retweeted it. Go and look at it. Um, and then the howls of outrage from his Sky News colleagues at the end when he, when he says, thank you, what? 
<laughs> Sydney media bubble. He's right about the Sydney media bubble and it's a big part of the reason why the media didn't pick up what was going to happen in Victoria and WA because they saw everything about the pandemic through that particular North Shore Sydney lens uh, and they didn't realise uh, just how angry people were with the federal government in those two states. And there's Paul Murray, you know, 1,000 days of resistance start. He thinks he's in the French resistance. He, Paul Murray's going to become a prepper. Hiding, hiding in the hills against elbow. I was expecting a Sky journalist to pop up at Tokyo and say to pro, our Prime Minister, what's the GDP of Japan? Do you know the number? Are you running away from the question? <laughs> okay, yeah. let's uh, let's wrap this thing up. Let's do some final thoughts or reflections on uh, on the campaign and, uh, and maybe even the, our, our time together. I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, David, I'll go to you first. Uh, a, a really fascinating campaign. Um, Obviously, the Prime Minister and his toxicity won it for us in the end. Um, I think some tough lessons for Labor about uh, the campaign, that Albo's performance was was uneven um, and did create moments for dramatic exploitation by News Limited and the Coalition. We have to do some new thinking, I think, about the travelling party of journalists that travels with the leader. It just doesn't make sense to send the Labor leader around Australia with the Liberal Party's comms team tagging along. Um, And uh, overall, I think the Labor, for the first time in a long time, showed in its digital and television media efforts, strong paid media performances, good creative, good swift political instincts. So a big step up, I think, in the quality of uh, Labor's campaign, and it was lovely to see. Conversely, I thought the Liberal Party's launch ad was an excellent political commercial and then everything they did thereafter I thought was pretty ordinary. Thank you so much. Emma, final Um, Look, it was a fascinating campaign and I think we can't rest on our laurels with this. Um, There was a a visceral rejection of Morrison. It's very nice of them to to now elect Peter Dutton. That helps us a lot in the short term, I think. But... There's also a lot of anger in the in those communities. At, at uh, I think they eventually realised that Scott Morrison was deeply involved in rolling Malcolm Turnbull, um, and and a lot of those communities really uh, won't forgive for that. As neither will Malcolm himself. Um, it's going to be a different election campaign next time, and what we've got to do now is navigate the next three years. And as we've talked about before, David has said, you know, News Limited tends to turn its focus on trying to pull the, the Liberal National Coalition to the right when they're in opposition. Um, but we don't have a lot of sympathetic media on our side either. The, the Greens get more um, sympathetic coverage, as do the community independents. We've got to learn how to communicate with the electorate around big ideas, because I think one thing that Albo said on the night, which was right, and it was the right message, uh, particularly given the circumstances of the win, was that Australians have voted for change. They vote Labor governments in when they're not happy with the status quo and when they want us to do something to fix it. Um, And we've got to be able to do that in quite a challenging uh, parliament, um, but also a challenging uh, electoral environment with the media. Um, And so I think it will behoove us to start now talking to people on the ground about you know, what we, not only what we can do in government, um, but how we carry through that strong, progressive messaging that, and we haven't talked about this and I want to at the last minute, it was an absolutely fantastic acceptance speech from Albo on Saturday night. It was a terrific 
Labor speech. And like many true believers, I was a bit disappointed with Kevin Rudd's acceptance speech in 2007 when he told everyone to have a cup of tea and a vovo and don't get too excited, you know. There was more hope in Albo's address. There was more genuine Labor thinking and social democratic thinking in that address. And while he'd been criticised for not having the policies to back it up, and we talked about why and there's a bloody good reason for that, everything he said on Saturday made you think, oh, yeah, this is, this is, this is my Prime Minister. This is a, a message for the Australia that I grew up with and that I know and love, where we are going to, it'll take us a long time to fix a lot of what's been done over the last quarter century, uh, when we've only been in power for six of 25 years or something. But that, that commitment to social mobility, to opportunity, to inclusiveness, to bringing the country together, uh, I think is absolutely what Australians wanted to hear. Um, and even some of our more cynical journalist friends were, I think, quite surprised at how affected they were by that change in rhetoric after so many years of divisive rhetoric. So we've got to build on that over three years, keep that um, first and foremost and at the front of uh, our messaging. And I also, final reflection is that Albanese is absolutely the right man in, to lead this parliament. We, we will likely have a very slim majority in the lower house ourselves, but I don't think he's likely to push aside or ignore the crossbench. I think he recognises that the community has given them a lot of support and in wanting to be a consensus building Prime Minister, he will be consultative as he was uh, as manager of the house in the last uh, hung parliament. And policy courage from the high ground of government is how we rebuild our primary vote. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and if we do that and get that right, uh, we lift our primary significantly next time and we, we probably win back some of those seats from the Greens too. Yeah. Um, my uh, final ref reflection, and uh, since this is a, um, a podcast that is um, heavily pro-community organising, and I know that today we've been talking a lot about, you know, we've talked about ground game and having hard conversations on the doors with voters. Can I just talk about um, field for one moment? Um, and one thing I ha have noticed over the course of this campaign, which happens every campaign, the media's fascination with what I'd call sort of the new grassroots campaign. Um, historically, it's always been the Greens. The Greens um, have a love in relationship with a lot of the sort of the Fairfax media about that would, where they'd write glowing columns about this new different type of campaigning that we've never seen before. Um, and now they've got a new boo and it's, uh, the, it's the Teals in this particular campaign. And don't misunderstand me, the the Teals ran a great ground game in the in the in the seats where they um, focused their energies, um, but I just want to point out to to folks out there that the community organising model uh, of campaigning was first introduced by the Labor Party in the 2013 and 2014 election cycle, and they've been doing it now for almost a decade. But it has been under the radar. We don't tend to get these stories up and I've tried when my former days as a party official to try and get journalists to write about this I can tell you how many times I got it done three times I can count how many times there's been an article written about Labor's ground game it, on one hand it's been probably about five times nationally um, but so I want to use this podcast and this platform just to shout out the work of our volunteers uh, across the country uh, the, for example the Victorian Labor field campaign on Saturday night went five from five they, they held Karangamite, they held Dunkley, they're going to hold McNamara and they picked up Chisholm and Higgins and that's fantastic. And Higgins alone, they knocked on 26,000 uh, yep. doors and 26,000 calls in the final six weeks, which is a huge, huge effort. Um, and I think if we had field in Deakin and Menzies, they'd be Labor seats now. And nationally, um, 
Um, I also want to point out that um, this was bigger than the 2019 campaign. Um, we had over 30,000 volunteers across the country. They made uh, just under 1.5 million calls, knocked on just up, uh, around 900,000 doors. There was over 12,000 campaign events. And that's just in the final eight weeks. That's not talking about what was going on throughout the whole year because organising isn't something you just do in the last minute. It's got to be sustainable and it takes time and you've got to embed organisers early. And I think one of the key takeaways from this campaign is we've got to start putting organisers in not, um, not six weeks out, not um, six months out, but three years out, we need to start putting our community organisers into communities that we want to win or hold seats or flip seats early. Um, so to all the field organisers across the country, um, thank you for all of your hard work, uh, for what you have done over the course of this campaign, to all the Labor volunteer leaders and all the volunteers for your time and your energy and your stories that you gave on the doors and on the phone calls with voters, thank you very much. Um, you know, they continue to bring to life the teachings and the practice of Alinsky and Huerta and Chavez and Ross and Gantz. Um, and this campaign was another moment of a story of us and you should be very, very proud about that. And I also wanted to give a shout out to the National Assistant Secretary, Jen Light, and the National Field Director, Patty Batchelor, who led the field program. Coordinating a national field program is not easy. It takes planning and patience and courage. Uh, and the party... And, the, and diplomacy, absolutely. Trying to work with all those branches, particularly pricks like me, is not easy. Uh, but our party is stronger for your efforts. So uh, fantastic. Well done to you guys. Um, and also just to Paul Erickson as well, the National Secretary, who did an outst led an outstanding campaign. Um, he doesn't get enough um, shout-outs as well. So well done, Paul. That's um, very true. You know, when campaigns go spectacularly well, the leader's a genius. And when campaigns go terribly, we need a new campaign director. Um Campaign directors don't get enough credit when things go right, um, and that's not an entirely self-serving remark. Um, Paul did an outstanding job. He did. And the he word, really did. Terrific campaign. And the word social movement's being thrown around like a bottle of Jamison's on St Paddy's Day at the moment, and I'll just say that you only truly become a social movement when you remove the paid staff from that community and then let the, the leadership within that community continue to organise at a sustainable level, and that's not easy. We all know those of us in the Labor Party who have – been doing this for a while know that that's tough work so let's just not throw the right social movement around just yet let's see how these campaigns operate without paid staff on the ground that's all i'm that's my final thought there uh to you two guys uh emma dawson from per capita and david feeney from david feeney proprietary limited thank you very much not just for today's <laughs> podcast but for all of your uh insights and uh contributions to the last seven episodes um, when we first got together and said, I've got an idea, I want to hang out with you guys every week. Um, I don't know if you knew what you were in for, uh, but look, the feedback that we've got from um, all of our listeners across the country has been nothing but glowing and positive and they've loved it and I've loved having you guys on the show uh, over the course of these seven weeks. Next week, um, we'll you know, go back to our traditional programming um, and I'm going to miss your voices and I'm sure a lot of our uh, audience uh, will too. So to the both of you, thank you so much uh, for being a part of this uh, journey and having this great result as well on Saturday night. It's been great fun and uh, it was a fun with a good outcome. So yeah, thanks very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you both. I think we've had some, um, we've collectively generated some good insights and a bit of humour. 
Indeed. And to all of our uh, audience out there in uh, podcast land, thank you so much for sticking with us over the course of these um, episodes. We'll be back obviously next week. Um, episodes are always up every Friday morning-ish. Today's obviously going to be a bit later because we did a Friday morning recording. But they're always up on a Friday. Um, and we've got a whole heap of great guests lined up over the course of the next six or seven weeks, which sort of will kind of continue to unpack this election campaign as the results of finally being counted. And we'll look at it from a demographic side, a media perspective. And then, as I said to you before, we'll do some of that state-by-state analysis as well. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, well done, Albo. Great to live under a, a Labor sun. And uh, we'll see you uh, next week. Freedom! Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.